So Jesus came so that we could know joy. And Luke chapter 2 in the story, in the telling of Jesus' Jesus's birth, as we read earlier, they, the, got the Lord, through an angel of the Lord, goes to the shepherds. And the angel of the Lord says this to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But do you notice what he says? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That Jesus came so that all people might have the opportunity of great joy. A joy that isn't circumstantial, a joy that isn't fleeting, a joy instead that is durable and persevering, a joy that is real and genuine, a joy that comes from a fountain within and is expressed outwardly. But you know what, what we found out? As we've lived this broken, in this broken world, and as we've walked in these broken shoes, we, what we've discovered is that the, though joy is available, it is fleeting. And it is fleeting because suffering is pervasive. Right? That what we have discovered is that for most of us, joy, sincere, durable, persevering joy is elusive. Because it seems like every time we're turning the corner toward joy, every time we're turning the, the corner toward peace, every time we're turning the corner toward kind of a, a, a peace time in our lives, suffering is waiting there for us. Suffering is late, waiting around the corner like a tiger ready to pounce upon us. And so every time we find ourselves in the edges of joy, we figure out that suffering is not far away. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to move from Genesis to almost the end of the Bible. We're going to go from Genesis to 1 Peter. We're going to step into the midst of a conversation between Peter and the suffering church. And what Peter is going to explain to the suffering church, it is the entire theme of the book of 1 Peter, is that how they might have a joy in light of suffering. That because of Christ, because of what he has accomplished, because of who he is and what he has done and what he has brought in his coming, that we might have joy in light of affliction, how we might have joy in light of suffering, how we might have joy in light and in the face of great difficulty in our lives. And so as we come into this holiday season, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas Eve next week and all the things that go with that, I can think of no better place for us to go, no better way for us to think of joy than to see how we might have joy in light of suffering. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is near the back of your Bible. 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word together? 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 18. We'll read through verse 22. God's inerrant and all-inspired word says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. All right, so this morning... We come to one of the most controversial and difficult passages in all of the New Testament. Martin Luther, he even said, I have no idea what Peter is actually talking about there. Most of the scholars that I've read says that whatever your view is of 1 Peter chapter 3, it is a minority view because there is no majority view to speak of. And so what I thought was, let's dive right in the middle of that for Christmas. Let's just dive right into the middle of one of the most difficult and controversial passages for Christmas. And so what I want us to do is unpack this a little bit and and see what the Lord has because I think it offers to us joy as we celebrate the coming of Christ, as we celebrate Christ's advent. So as we think about these difficult passages and really as we think about any passage of Scripture, what we have to realize is that every passage of Scripture is given to us in a specific context. That every passage of Scripture is given in a specific context and to determine the meaning of that text, especially a difficult text, it is important for us to pay very close attention to the context in which it is given. Now I've already told you that in the book of 1 Peter that Peter is writing to a group of Christians Christians that, is un- that are suffering great persecution. He's writing to a group of Christians that are beneath the rule of an emperor of Rome named Nero, and the greatest persecution at this stage in the church has begun to break out over all of Rome. And so let's look at one verse before and one verse after, and I think we'll see bookended here what it is that Paul, that Peter is trying to get across to. So let's look at verse 17. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing God's will, if for doing, uh, for, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than it is for you to do evil. And by the way, to do evil is to do anything other than God's will. And so what he is saying is that sometimes, In the life of the Christian, sometimes in the life of the disciple of Christ, it is God's will that you endure suffering. It is God's will that you face affliction. Even more specifically in this context, it is God's will that there are times in your life in which you will suffer because you identify with Christ. You will suffer because you are a follower of Jesus. You will suffer because you will have to walk against a culture. You will have to walk against the flow, against the current. And walking against the culture is going to bring hardship into your life. In Peter's day and in many places around the world in our day, that means your life. This is a call to martyrdom. That if it be God's will for your life, that if you were to bring glory to him through being a martyr, even unto death, that it is better to die serving Christ than it is to live outside of the will of God. Now let's go to one verse after in chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he's talking about the way that we are to think. The way that we are to think of our suffering. The way that we are to process our suffering. The perspective from which we are to view our suffering. So we have these two bookend verses, right? On verse 17 and then chapter 4, verse 1. And both of them are explaining to us how it is that we are to think about Christian suffering. How it is that we are to view pain and affliction that comes into our lives. And so what we can be confident in, in knowing that 1 Peter is written to suffering Christians and for the purpose of encouraging for, uh, uh, hurting Christians, and that chapter, verse 17 and then chapter 4 verse 1 are both written for us to think about our perspective on suffering, then what we can be confident is, is whatever translation, whatever interpretation we might arrive at, it ought to be talking to us about suffering. That Peter's reason in giving us that is so that we can think rightly about our suffering, so that we can persevere in our suffering, and what I believe, so that we can have joy in our suffering. And now those things sound mutually exclusive, don't they? It sounds impossible to think that I can have great suffering, agony, difficulty, and pain, and yet at the very same time, I can have joy and peace and confidence and satisfaction in my life. But I think that's exactly the reason that Peter has written this book. That's exactly the reason that we're given the passage that we read this morning. Now, like I said, this, the people that he's writing to, they certainly know what suffering is. Peter, uh, Nero, had burned down the monuments of Rome, wanting to rebuild them so that everybody would remember him as a great architect, remember him as a great emperor. Well, obviously the people of Rome were not thrilled with the idea of all of their relics being burned to the ground. And so what Nero did is he pinned the blame of his arsonist ambition on this small group of people that were already controversial, that were already causing a rise among the others, the Christians. And so he pins it on them and the entire culture comes crashing down on the followers of Jesus. So Nero would take Christians and he would cover them in hot wax and he would light them on fire on top of giant poles as torches to illuminate his gardens. They would take them into the Roman Colosseum and they would feed them to the lions before tens of thousands of spectators for the sport of it. We know that just like Lord, because they were being mocked as being Christians, that was a, a, a word of mockery. That means little Christ. And so they would take what they would call these little Christ and they would take them outside of the city and they would crucify them just as Christ was crucified. So Peter is writing to a church that had buried numerous people. He is writing to a church in which fathers and husbands had been displaced. He is writing to a church that is living under the threat of their life literally every minute of every day simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ. Simply because they are attempting to live inside of the will of God. And so you can imagine the tension. You can imagine the conflict that has come. If my God is mighty... If my God is the one that is risen from the dead, if my God is the one that has conquered the grave, if my God is the one that was split the veil, if my God is the one that was raised as the earth shook and the skies went dark, if my God is him, how is it that this is so difficult for me? How is it that if he is with me, and he is with me always, even to the ends of the age, how is it if he has sent his helper to me, how is it that if I'm walking in his will, that I look around at my life, and it just doesn't look very good, and it just doesn't feel very good? 
So Peter's speaking right into the midst of that. He's saying, no, no, sometimes that is God's will. Sometimes that is God's will. Sometimes it is God's will, God's will that you endure for a little while. Sometimes it is God's will that you suffer for a little while. Sometimes it is God's will that you face great tragedy and circumstantial difficulty in this life. Sometimes that is God's will. And yet nonetheless, you can persevere in joy. And yet nonetheless, you can walk in hope. Yet nonetheless, you can walk in intimacy with the Lord and not be separated from him at all. And so what I want us to see from our passage this morning are three principles of joy that are found in Jesus' advent. Three principles of joy that are found in Jesus' coming. Let's read verse 18 again to see the first one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The first principle of joy that I want you to hear is that Jesus came so that suffering could be sweet. Jesus came so that suffering could be sweet. So Peter starts off talking about Jesus' suffering. He says specifically, Christ for Christ also suffered once for sins. Your Bible might say Christ also died once for sins. But then he is bringing into our minds Isaiah 53. These words are, are taken almost explicitly from Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. And so he's bringing into our mind the great, the great suffering servant uh, parable written by our prophecy, written by Isaiah 600 years before. And which is said that the man that would come, the child that would be born, the one that was coming would be one that would endure great hardship in his life, great difficulty in his life. That even though he was innocent, he would be striped. That even though he was pure, he would be reviled. That even though he loved, he would be hated. That even though he came to build up, he himself would be crushed. And so Peter is bringing into the minds of these suffering Christians. And he's saying, remember who you follow. Remember the one to whom you have surrendered. Remember the one whose road, whose path you have taken. You have taken the path of the suffering servant. You have followed after the suffering Christ. You are going where he went and where he went was to the cross. Where he went was to a place of great difficulty. And the whole time, where is Christ? As he is going to the cross, as he is reviled in the world, as he is hated by men, as he is spat upon, as the beard is ripped from his face, who, where is he? Right in the center of his Father's will. Right in the center of God's will. That Christ was doing exactly what God would have for him to do. Christ was going exactly where, where God would have for him to go. That, now, if there has ever been anyone who was within perfectly the will of the Father, it was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet being right in the middle of God's will, what Christ experienced was constant, steady affliction. And so he's saying, remember, remember as you go through this life, remember as the empire comes against you, 
Remember as, as the emperor crashes down upon you. Remember as you face great suffering and trial in your life that you are following the suffering servant. And that does not mean that you have been excluded from the will of God. In fact, it may mean that you are in fact right in the center of it. But it doesn't stop there. In this conversation about Christ's suffering, he says, but don't forget why he suffered. Don't forget why he suffered. Don't forget why he endured the stripes. Don't forget why he bore the scars. Don't forget why he hung gasping on the cross. Don't forget why that Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for you. That you have a sympathetic high priest. You have a high priest that knows your pain and knows your agony. You have a God that is not, not outside thinking about how bad it must hurt, but has walked down pain and agony street himself and knows firsthand its difficulty. But you have a high priest that not only can sympathize with you, that not only knows your suffering, but who himself offered himself on the altar that he gave himself up for you. Because what happens as we suffer? What happens as we suffer? Even as Christians, even though we know all of God's promises perhaps, even though we are feeding ourselves on God's word perhaps, what happens to us as Christians? We find ourselves in the midst of pity parties, don't we? We find ourselves in the midst of pity parties. How could God let this happen to me? How could God let this happen to my children? How could God let my health be like this? How could God let this be in my family, in, in my marriage? How could God let this happen to my career? I was always upright. I was always ethical. I always did what I was supposed to do. I raised my children to love the Lord. I tried to honor my husband or honor my wife. I tried to do all of the things that the Lord has called me to do. I've done to the best of my ability, lived in surrender and submission to him. And here I am and all of it's unraveling. Here I am and it feels like my life is coming apart. How could God let that happen to me? And so what Peter is doing to these suffering Christians, that, that, and don't get a false idea that Christians around the world love the fact that they are suffering. No, the Christians in Peter's day, they would have had these same thoughts. But Peter comes to them and he calls out their hypocrisy. He comes to them and he calls out their hypocrisy. And he says, before you throw a pity party about your suffering, before you ask God how he could dare allow you to experience one ounce of pain in your life, you better remember what God did for you. That God is not asking you to suffer and has not himself suffered. No, God not only came and suffered, but he suffered because of you. He suffered at your hands. He suffered for your hope. He suffered for your joy. That Christ came so that he might make this divine exchange with you. That he might take everything bad in you and take it away from you and take everything good in him and trade it for that which was broken in you. That's what he says, right? The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. This divine exchange that takes place because of Christ's work on the cross, because of Christ's suffering. And Peter is bringing that into our minds. 
So we get in the midst of these pity parties. Let us remember who we now are. Let us remember the suffering that we caused to Christ. That, that for us, it was supposed to be condemnation, but because of Christ, we know salvation. That for us, we were to be destitute and slaves, and now we are adopted as sons and daughters. We were born underneath the law, but we have been brought in by grace. We knew misery and despair, and now we know joy and hope. That Christ has come and Christ has suffered because Christ made an exchange with you. Him for you. You get what he deserves. He takes what you deserve. So before you throw your pity party, before you get wrapped up in all of your holiday despair, remember who Christ is, that Christ has come and he has suffered, that you might have a more glorious inheritance, that you might walk in joy and walk out of slavery and enjoy sonship and daughtership and the kingdom of God. So as Christians, reject the pity parties. Reject the pity parties that creep into your life. Jesus traded himself for you. It was Christ for you. Christ for me. Christ's suffering had a purpose. And its purpose was to bring you to God. And as Christ's suffering inside of God's will had a purpose for him, so does your suffering have a purpose inside of the will of God. But you know what I like? I like that Peter doesn't land it on suffering. He's talking to suffering people. And it would be easy for Peter talking to suffering people to, to look and to help to see how Christ identifies with our suffering and to see that there is purpose in suffering and there is meaning in suffering, that even you can be inside of God's will and yet still suffer. But, Paul, but Peter doesn't stop there, does he? Notice what he says at the last phrase of verse 18. He says, but being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Here's what he's doing. He's helping us see past the, 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 the picture of defeat. He's helping us see past the image of suffering. He's helping us see past the image of great difficulty in our lives. He's helping us to see past the pain. He's removing the mask off of all of the things and to see what it, for what it really is to, to, again, zoom us out so that we can see this thing from a true perspective. And so what he's saying is remember your cost to Christ, but don't remember what Christ paid without remembering what Christ won. Don't remember what, how Christ suffered without remembering how Christ was raised. Yes, on earth, he was put to death. Yes, he was buried. Yes, he appeared to be defeated. Yes, he was reviled. Yes, he was hated. But remember, suffering Christian, remember those of you facing great difficulty that he didn't stay in the grave. Remember that he didn't stay in the ground. Remember that his defeat seemed as though it was temporary because Christ was raised in resurrection glory and ascended to the right hand of his Father from whom, before whom all things, all peoples, all creatures are subjected to him. What is he saying to Christians? What is he saying to the Christian that is suffering? 
What is he saying to the Christian that feels like they're following after Christ and the harder they follow after Christ, the more difficulty they encounter? What is he saying to those who who are trying to the best of their ability by God's grace and God's strength to live inside of the will of God and yet living inside of the will of God, it feels like their life is always unraveling. Here's what I think he's saying. Suffering in your life does not mean that God has betrayed you. Suffering in your life does not mean that God's betraying you. Suffering does not speak of God's betrayal. Instead, the Christian sees suffering as a great gateway to greater blessing in Christ. That our blessing isn't in this earth. Our blessing is not in the earthly realm. That instead what God does is he uses the suffering of his children to build up reward for them in heaven. That what God does is he takes the attacks of the enemy. Those things that the enemy intends to use to crush you. And he uses those attacks of the enemy to ultimately bring you in to greater glory. To make you in this life more into the image of Christ. And and make you in the next life have an even greater demonstration of his kindness to enjoy. That's what we saw on the cross, isn't it? It appears that the enemy won. It appears as though Satan and all of his minions have come and done their working through the hatred of men to bring death to the Christ. He said, what does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves that even when Satan is at work and even when it appears as Satan is winning and even when it feels like he's working through the hatred of men and through the wickedness of men, that God in the lives of his people in the lives of his beloved, is going to take it and he's going to turn it to glory. He's going to take it and he's going to, re- he's going to use it not as a means of your destruction, but as a mean of your, means of your construction. That he's going to use it as a gateway of blessing to increase your eternal reward forever. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, For we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That, that in other words, our suffering, our hardship, our difficulty is a means toward glory, a means toward reward, a means toward going deeper and deeper into the kindnesses of God. So Christian, you can persevere in this life. You can persevere in the face of suffering. Because Jesus has come to make your suffering sweet. Jesus has come to take your suffering and to see that you can count on God's promises and know God's nearness and take refuge in God ultimately to persevere through Christ's grace and through Christ's provision and enjoy even greater, greater eternal rewards because of your perseverance. The second way. That we see the second uh, principle of joy that we see in Christ's advent. Jesus came to make judgment glorious. Jesus came to make judgment glorious. Now, when we think about judgment, we typically don't connect judgment and glorious. Like, like most people are hanging out thinking, man, I hope Jesus judges me today. I'd love to just stand before Jesus, naked and exposed, have my whole life scrolled before me on a screen so that I can say, hey, Jesus, would you judge me? But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I believe that's the wrong attitude about the judgment. 
If you're a Christian, if you're covered in Christ's grace, if you've been brought to his table, I want you to know this morning that his judgment is not condemning for you. Instead, it is glorifying for you, enjoyable for you, delightful for you. Something that you can use to see through the suffering in this life. Something that you can use to, to see through all the affliction and the difficulties that you may face. And I want you to see that through a little old verse called 1 Peter 3.19. Now, I say it like that because this one's a bit of a booger, all right? Like, like this is a legit verse, you know what I'm saying? Like, when people say, I don't know what the, I don't understand what the Bible means, like, you come, if you just have 1 Peter 3.19, you say, I kind of get it, right? Like, like, that's a hard one. Now, remember our first core value is to start with the Word, and 2 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that this contains the breath of God, and that this is helpful for us, and that this is good for us. Now, let's read that verse together so you can, uh, again, remember what I'm saying, all right? It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, uh, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, what does that mean? Right? Like, what in the world are we talking about here? Jesus is preaching to the spirits in prison? Like, come on, man, right? Now, there's a bunch of different views, all right? Like, you could literally get on the internet today, and you could Google that verse, and you could probably read 200 different people, and you might find 200 different views on exactly what that means. Now, some of the more mainstream views, one of the ones that's kind of been, two of the ones that's, I mean, two of the ones that's been around the longest. One is that this is call, calling, this is talking about Christ's descent. In other words, what they would say is that following Christ's death, that Christ descended into hell or perhaps into purgatory, and that he began to, to preach either condemnation in hell or perhaps an opportunity for an, an, an afterlife salvation in hell or an afterlife salvation in purgatory. And so Christ kind of does this victory march through hell, a victory march through purgatory, kind of preaching, okay? But, but none of that is in view, okay? In fact, the Bible does not even say that Christ ascends in any way. The Bible does not say that, uh, that, that Christ uh, is like separated from the Lord or anything like that upon his death. Instead, what did Christ say to the thief beside him on the cross? This day, this day you will be with me in paradise, right? This day. So if he's going to be in paradise, I'm going to assume paradise isn't purgatory. I'm going to assume paradise isn't hell. That if it's this day you're going to be with me in paradise, I'm going to assume that the time between Christ's death and resurrection, he went to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that he was with his heavenly father. Okay, another view that's very common that goes all the way back to the time of Augustine, one of the early church fathers, is that Christ incarnate spoke through, uh, Christ pre-incarnate spoke through Noah in the days of Noah, and Christ speaking, preaching through Noah to the days of Noah um, was rejected. I just don't see that. Like, I, I, just, I just don't see it there. And there are people that I love, there are people that I follow that hold that view very tightly, and we just agree to disagree. You know what I mean? Like, like, I'm just not there, okay? And there's a lot of other views. But I want to share with you 
what I think this passage is saying. And I want to share with you why I think this passage was given to suffering Christians. Christians that are going through great difficulty in their life. Because I think this passage offers great joy and at the same time a great exhortation to faithfulness for those who are not yet in Christ. All right? So let, let's, let's talk about a couple of things really quick before we get there. Okay? Now, at the end of verse 18, again... It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right? So, what, when we come in the book of 1 Peter, typically when we want to interpret a word, remember this is, liter- this is written in Greek, it's not written in English, okay? Like, we got to get up off of our English snobbery a little bit and remember things like that. This was written in Greek. And so, these words are translations of Greek words, right? And so the, when you're translating a word and when, then when you're interpreting a translation of that word, it's important that you kind of see how has that author used that word in other instances. All right, so the word flesh here is used six times in the book of 1 Peter. At least four of those times it is used not to speak of a physical body, not to speak of, of you physically sitting in the chair, but instead to speak of the earthly realm. The earthly world, life on earth, difficulties on earth, suffering on earth, hardship on earth. It is speaking of all the things in the earthly realm and all the things that come with it. Then it says made alive. That's used 10 times. Almost every time it is used to speak of of, of, of the resurrection, of being raised. That is being raised in new life, being raised with a new nature, being raised with a new heart that now you have been, you have been put to death in Christ, but now you are being raised as Christ was raised and being raised as Christ was raised. You now have a, have a nature like that of Christ. Now, when we go into spirit, the word spirit is used to kind of drive that home. Not so much talking about the, the, the one individual human spirit or even the Holy Spirit, but more specifically about the realm over which the Holy Spirit r- rules, the heavenly realm. Okay, so here, here's why that's important. What Christ, what, what Peter is talking about here is not about a body and a spirit. He's talking about the difference between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. He's talking about the difference between those things that we encounter on earth and those things that we will encounter in glory. Those things that we have trouble with now and those things that we will enjoy later. He is talking about not Christ's descension into the earth, but instead of Christ's ascension into the heavenly realm. Christ's ascension into the realm in which the Spirit rules. I think this is backed up by verse 22, right? Read verse 22 with me. We're going somewhere with this, all right? So y'all hang with me. We're just a little bit technical. I know, but y'all hang with me. We're going somewhere. Verse verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And remember, verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's saying, what I'm saying in verses 21 and 22 corresponds to what I've just said in verses 18 through 20. And again, he's talking about Christ's ascension, all right? The next thing I want you to observe is what he says about the flood, right? He says that the, there were eight of them, Noah and his family. We've been, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, right? There were eight of them and that they were saved. They, were, they passed through the judgment, through the water, all right? Now, what's weird about that? What's weird about that? Was the water an instrument of salvation? Or was the water an instrument of judgment? See, when we think about the flood, what do we think about? God's judgment raining upon the earth, 
We think about God's judgment coming and obliterating nearly an entire generation, an entire civilization. But what Peter is reminding them of is that the the flood is not just an instrument of judgment. That the flood is at the very same time an instrument of salvation. That which was used to judge the majority was used at the very same time to bring salvation to a few. See, the people on the ark, they didn't know the flood in judgment. They knew the flood as God's mercy. Because God, God, God instructed them on the ark and they built the ark and God spared them and saved them. And so they passed through the flood and as they're floating and as they've listened to the agonizing cries of all of their neighbors and they've witnessed the devastation that has swept across the earth, all they could have thought again and again is how merciful has God been to me. How merciful has God been to me? How good has God been to me? How kind has God been to me? So let's put that together. Let's put this together for just a second, all right? I want to read to you what I have. Noah preached to his generation, yet no one else got on the ark. When the judgment came, everyone wanted on the ark, but the time of judgment had already passed. Noah passed through the judgment, and the rest of his generation was crushed by it. For Noah, the ark was the most glorious reality, but for the rest of his generation, it proved the tragedy of their unbelief. You can imagine, right? You can imagine Noah and his, his seven family members on the boat and the waves are rocking him back and forth. The cries have, have finally stopped as the last swimming human finally gives up and hears the gurgling sound of them drowning beneath. And as they're there, they realize that they have been secured by the Lord. They have been protected by the Lord. They have been delivered by the Lord. But for those that were drowning, for those that were fading away, for those that were being submerged beneath the flood, as they looked upon the ark in the distance, as they realized what it was happening, they saw the ark in a completely different light. They saw the ark not as a tool of salvation, but as a tool of judgment, pronouncing their condemnation. For there were eight on the ark, but here they were drowning. And can I tell you something? That is the picture of Christ's judgment seat. That is the picture of Christ's judgment seat. For Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is sitting rightly upon his throne. And seated before his throne, every man, woman, and child will one day come before him and they will kneel and bow and tremble. And whether they loved him or not, whether they knew him or not, they will tremble and they will declare Jesus as Lord. But before the judgment seat, there will be two different experiences. As Jesus proclaims the kingdom message, as Jesus preaches the gospel truth that he has come, that the world might be saved and the world might be made new, there will be two different hearings of that sermon. For the redeemed, for the saved, for the adopted, for those that walk in Christ and delight in Christ and love Christ and enjoy Christ, they will hear it and they will worship and they will praise. They will be awestruck by his kindness and awestruck by his love and they will be reveling in his glory forever, enjoying his kindness, enjoying his inheritance. But just like in the parable of of Lazarus and the rich man, those that are plunged beneath, those who are cast in the lake of fire, 
Those who rejected Christ on earth, those who live life their own way, those who live life in their own wisdom and by their own strength and for their own glory, those who live life that way, they will see the throne. They will see the judgment seat. They will be surrounded by Noah's generation and they will hear the same sermon. But like the ark to the man that was drowning, they will hear it and they will realize it is the condemnation's word. It is the judgment of Christ coming upon them and they will live in infinite react uh, an infinite dread and discouragement. I wrote it out like this. For some, speaking of Christ's judgment seat, it is the source of praise. For most, it is the source of agony's cry. For the redeemed, it is the source of life. For the condemned, it is the reminder of death. For the church, it compels the question, why would he love me? For the judged, how could I not love him? You see, from his throne, from his judgment seat, Jesus is preaching to the dead and to the living. To the dead, he preaches judgment, and to the living, he preaches joy. And it is the same sermon heard by, from vastly different perspectives. It is the source of greatest satisfaction, at the same time, deepest regret. The ark is beautiful in your, if you're on board, and it's devastating if you glimpse it as you're drowning. The very instrument of judgment for most is the means of salvation for some. Christ is seated on his throne with all peoples and all creatures subjected to him, and that is either life's most glorious news or eternity's most haunting. See, one day you will stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. One day you will kneel before his judgment seat. And on that day, you will hear one of two things. Either it will be, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come, all of this I have prepared for you. Or it will be, depart from me, for I never knew you. On that day, all of your suffering and all of your affliction and all of your difficulty for following him will either be worth it or all of your self-centeredness and all of your selfishness and all of you living for you will be utterly devastating. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, friends, those of you not in Christ yet, come aboard. Come aboard. The flood is rising. The judgment is coming. But Christ has come. Christ has come. Christ has come to offer you joy. Not just joy right now, but joy that is eternal. Joy that will allow you to see through the flood waters and through the darkened skies to see Christ seated upon his throne and to know all of this is going to work together for his glory and for your good. The judgment seat will come. You will bow before it. Let it be a day of redemption. Let it be a day that proves that Christ is supreme. Let it be a day that makes all of your suffering worth it. Let it be a day that makes all of this fade away as he places on your head a crown of unfading glory and wipes from your face for the very final time the tears of tragedy. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. The judgment is coming, but Christ has come. Come to Christ. Jesus came to make your judgment Glorious, not condemning, not terrifying, glorious, that you can enjoy and revel in, this pre in the presence of Christ. 
Finally, Jesus came so you could walk in victory. Jesus came so that you could walk in victory. Listen to what he says about baptism in verse 21. This is baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Do you hear what he's saying to these people that are suffering? He's saying, I know you look around and it looks like you're losing. I know you, you look around and it feels like everything is unraveling. I know you look at your life and you wonder how it is that you could lose so badly when I love you so dearly. You, you look at the caskets of your beloved and you wonder, how can this be? You look at the doctor's reports as they keep filing in and the medical bills as they keep stacking up and you keep wondering, how is it that I can suffer so greatly if God loves me so dearly? How is it that I keep on losing? And you know what Peter tells these suffering Christians and what he tells each and every one of us? Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Now he's quick to clarify you were not saved because you were dunked in water. You were saved because you made an appeal to God. Lots of people have been dunked in water that don't know the Lord. No, you were saved because you made an appeal to God to walk with him with a good conscience, to live out to the best of your ability to his glory and to devote your life entirely to him. So you weren't saved because you were dunked, but remember what that was teaching? Yeah, in this earthly realm, you may be put to death. In this earthly realm, you'll identify with Christ's suffering. In this earthly realm, it's gonna be a lot of reviling. It's gonna be a lot of hating. It's gonna be a lot of difficulty. There's gonna be a lot of dark days. There's gonna be a lot of hardships. The, the bank account's not always gonna balance. You're not always gonna move forward because you live an ethical life and because you're a, 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 an ethical employer or run an ethical business. You're not always going to advance because you just stand firmly for the things of God. No, remember that this is the earthly realm. Remember that you are identifying with Christ in his suffering and his death on the earthly realm. But don't you stop right there, Christian. Don't you stop in the earthly realm. Because as Christ was raised in resurrection glory, as you were raised out of those baptism waters, you now walk in newness of life. And you now walk in victory. You walk in the victory of Christ, who reigns supreme over the spiritual realm, who, reign, who will one day come back and return and reestablish a new heaven and a new earth. So right now, in the midst of suffering, right now, in the midst of hardship, right now, in the midst of all of your tears and in all of your agony, hold your head up, Christian. Walk in victory, Christian, because Christ has come. Christ has come, and he has raised you from the miry clay, and he has put your feet upon the rock, and one day he's going to come back, and he's going to get you again. So, Christian, in the midst of all of this suffering, in light of all of this difficulty, in light of all of this affliction, have joy. Let's pray together.